Great song, Ron. Thank you. Particularly as you get ready to preach, the lyrics in that song are very, very powerful. Open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, page 1138. Page 1138. We're continuing with our series and we return again now to the topic that we first raised a couple of weeks ago as we began chapter 14. How to live free in Christ. This is Paul's last major topic here in the book of Romans. And is really the, the outworking of the teaching that he gave us at the beginning of chapter 12 about living for Christ and what that looks like now in the context of a body of believers pulled together. I came to faith the end of my junior year in college, 30-something years ago, and after coming to faith, I became involved with my wife in a small Baptist church. And in that little Baptist church, the, the pastor had, done, had kind of a limited supply of sermons. I guess that would be the best way to say it. He had a bit of a limited supply. He was not a formally trained man, but he loved the Lord Jesus Christ and he had a passion for the lost. And so many, many sermons, if they didn't begin at John 3.16, they always found their way there at some point along the way. The other thing that in the years as I've reflected back on our time there that I've noted is that he also would speak frequently about how we were supposed to live for Jesus Christ. There were a lot of exhortations and admonishments about living holy holy lives for the Lord Jesus Christ, but there wasn't a lot of instruction about how to do that. There really wasn't very much instruction that came to us about the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the gospel and the, and the need to depend upon the grace of God, not just to be saved, but to continue saved in our relationship with Jesus Christ and to gain a measure of victory over sin in our lives. In fact, as I've reflected back on those early years, I think I can safely say that the environment in which we spent those early formative years was a bit legalistic. It was a bit of a legalistic kind of environment. There were a lot of do's and don'ts. And you know, a a Christianity that majors on the do's and don'ts is a truncated form of Christianity at best and is... At worst, not Christian at all. In fact, if you think about it, the ones who were best at the do's and don'ts were the ones in the New Testament for whom Jesus reserved his strongest condemnation. They were experts at behavioral modification. They were experts at laying out all the things you must do in order to be pleasing to God and what you do and what you don't do. Over 600 laws the Pharisees crafted. But you know, the opposite of legalism, the antidote for legalism, is not unrestrained freedom. That would allow the pendulum to swing too far in the other direction and would land you in another ditch on the other side of the road. 
And so the, to counteract legalism is not to, to advocate unrestrained freedom, not at all. Jesus Christ has set us free. Amen? But He has set us free within the confines of a community of believers, and we can never forget that. Our freedom is constrained by the fact that we live in community with other believers. Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12. Through the years, I've kind of observed that many people, when they first come to grips and, and their mind is really revealed to them, the glories of the grace of God, the doctrines of grace, the fact that we are saved by the grace of God alone and that nothing we can do either improves our standing before God or diminishes our standing before God, that we are secure in Jesus Christ and His finished atonement. I have noted that when some come to grips with that reality, they become a bit like a wild stallion. That is, the the fence of the corral has been broken down and the great wide world is open to them and they want to run for it. How far will my freedom go? How far can I push it? How free in Christ am I really? Is how they begin to approach their lives. And some people go pretty far. Pretty far. But beloved, listen to me. Listen to me. Unrestrained freedom is deadly. Unrestrained freedom is deadly. And so the Apostle Paul in the text before us this morning is going to speak to us about the restraints on freedom. How being free in Jesus Christ is a wonderful theological reality for which we should all long to experience. And yet there are legitimate constraints on that freedom. There are times when we rein it in and we do it for the sake of our brothers and sisters in whom we are in community. Six lessons, we've said, six lessons for chapters 14 and half of 15 that we have to learn and practice with regard to Christian freedom so that we don't rupture the unity of the body of Christ. We're in verse 13 here, 13 through 21. The first two lessons that Paul has given to us were in verses 1 to 3, and it was that we are to value the unity of the church. And his instructions there were to strong, right? We're to throw open our arms wide to embrace those who are weak in faith. Following that, last week, verses 4 to 12, we noted that we are to remember that that Jesus is our Lord and not man. And so Paul, really, last week was hammering away on the weaker brother and his propensity to judge those stronger brothers who are exercising their legitimate freedom in Jesus Christ. And what he says to the weaker brother is, you are not to take the place of Jesus Christ and exercise lordship over your own brother, that is, to judge their stand before God. Whether God is pleased with them or not, God alone will determine, for you cannot see their motives, and you have no business judging their actions. We kind of put it in a nutshell, and we said simple instruction to the weak in faith is, mind your own business. 
mind your own business. Well, in the text this morning, Paul is now going to turn and begin to address the strong. He's going to address the strong. He's, he's done speaking to the weak, at least for now, and he's going to address the strong, and he's going to address them on the topic of a loveless freedom. A loveless freedom. And so that takes us to our third lesson, beginning in verse 13, and that is that freedom is voluntarily, listen to me, voluntarily restricted by love. Biblical freedom is voluntarily restricted by love. How should a strong believer interact with a weaker believer, particularly one who has more restrictive convictions than his own? How do we approach that, we who are strong in faith, that is, understanding our freedom in Jesus Christ? How do we go about doing that? Well, Paul develops this point here that we are to voluntarily restrict our freedom, and he does it really by developing three points, beginning in in verse 13. I just want to note this for you in the text. There's a little textual clue, a little marker here that we can see that, that unveils the three points that he wants to make. You see it in verse 13. It begins with a conjunction, therefore. Just take a peek at that. Therefore. You'll see it again in verse 16. Again, therefore. You'll see it down in verse 19. It's the same Greek conjunction. It's translated there in the NASB as so then. So, therefore, therefore, so then. And Paul's argument is developed along those three lines. So, that's our simple structure this morning. Three points that support this basic overriding lesson that freedom is voluntarily restricted by love. The first there in verses 13 to 15 is, do not destroy your brother. Do not destroy your brother. Let me read the text for you. Paul says, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced In the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. Freedom is voluntarily restricted by love. And we see it first, verses 13 through 15, in the statement simply, do not destroy your brother. Now, Paul is continuing the argument here. It's all a section. And so the beginning part of verse 13, he kind of scoops up what he had previously taught, where he says, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. Let us not judge one another anymore. Interestingly there, the the verb to judge appears in two different forms in this 
In this verse, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this. Actually, same Greek verb, to judge. So Paul gives us a little play on words here. He says, those of you who like to judge, don't judge your brother. Instead, judge this. Or if I were to put it in the vernacular, hey, plank eye, get, get it out of your own eye and before you look for the knit in your brother's. It's basically what's Paul telling them here. Okay? He's gathering up the last lesson about Jesus is your Lord, not man, and now he's pushing it forward and he's introducing another aspect here of his teaching on Christian freedom. And what he simply says is, don't judge any brother, any, your brother anymore or one another anymore. Rather, judge or determine this. Don't do something. Don't put an obstacle or a stumbling block in your brother's way. Don't put an obstacle or a stumbling block in your brother's way. What is an obstacle? Well, simply put, it's something you trip over. It's something you trip over. Don't put something in your brother's way that he's going to trip over. Or a stumbling block, he says. Greek word scandalon is an interesting word. It means something designed to entrap a victim. It's, a, it's part of the trap system to, to trap a victim. And metaphorically, it refers to something that brings about spiritual ruin or even eternal destruction. Let's trace for a moment this, this word stumbling block, this word scandal on, because what we'll do is it will set for us the seriousness of Paul's prohibition here. So go ahead and turn back with me to the left and go to Matthew chapter 16, page 976. Matthew chapter 16, where we see this word scandalon or stumbling block used, verse 23. Here in Matthew chapter 16, Peter has just given his great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus commends him for this amazing insight into who he really is. And, of course, immediately Peter comes back under the influence of Satan and he pulls Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke him. Verse 22, he says, God forbid it, Lord, that you're going to die. You are the Messiah. You're not going to die. And Jesus turns and says to him, verse 23, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. That is, to derail Christ in his messianic program that is that he is going to the cross is a stumbling block that will bring about eternal destruction eternal destruction it is a scandal on you can see to the right of that a little bit verse chapter 18 verses 6 through 9 where jesus is talking about those who are young in faith beginning in verse 6 he says whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of it. There it is. Stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you, same word here, to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, it's better to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, throw it from you, it's better to, to lose an eye than it is to lose your life. 
So there's a very serious nature here in these stumbling blocks, these scandalon, these things that cause people spiritual ruin. Another interesting place where we see the word is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. I'll turn you over there, page 1141. Paul's speaking there about his preaching. He says, The Jews ask for signs, the Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach a crucified Messiah to the Jews, a scandalon, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. That is, the message of a crucified king, a crucified Messiah, brings about ruination of the Jewish nation. They cannot accept such a preaching. Their hearts and minds are blind to it at this time. I won't turn you there, but you can just mark Revelation chapter 2, verse 14 where it speaks there about the sexually perverse teaching of Balaam drawing away Israel and causing them to stumble or to be a stumbling block, brings about the ruination of the nation of Israel. And so this is a very serious matter. Back to Romans chapter 14, page 1138. This is a serious matter, a very, very serious matter to put an obstacle or or something that one would trip over or to bring about the spiritual ruin of another person. The spiritual ruin. Now listen carefully here. Paul is not saying to the Gentiles that you have to begin eating kosher food. That is not what he's saying to them. What he's saying to them is you must not try to convince your Jewish brother or sister to stop eating kosher food. That's the point. To do that will stumble them. It will bring about their ruin. Their ruin. You know, until a person is convinced otherwise, until convinced otherwise, the weak are in danger of spiritual ruin when they violate their conscience and follow after the strong. To violate one's conscience and to do that which a person knows to be wrong or believes to be wrong brings about their spiritual ruin. That's the point. And it does it really in one of two ways. There are two ways that it brings about spiritual ruin for the weak believer. The first is this, that he follows the example of the strong and then later feels guilty about it. He follows his strong brother into an activity, and then after participating in the activity, he feels very, very guilty about what he has done. And it brings about his ruin, Paul says, and could ultimately bring about his eternal destruction. It's a serious matter. Let me try to illustrate it for you this way. Suppose there was a young man who had been raised in a, in a Christian home, Christian environment, in which he had been taught that dancing was sin. That dancing was a sensual activity that was only to be participated in by a man and his wife in the privacy of their own home. That's the way he's been raised. And then he attends a church wedding. In this particular church wedding, they have an an off-campus reception in which they're dancing. And there at the reception, all of his friends, all of his contemporaries, they're dancing. They're enjoying the reception. The music's playing and the people are dancing and they're laughing and and having a great time. And he's sitting there. 
And he's not participating in the dancing. And so he's finally noticed. And so one by one, his friends go over to him and they grab him by the hand and they say, come on, come on out on the dance floor and dance. And he says, no, I, I, I shouldn't do that. No, come on, come on. It's not going to hurt you. We're having fun. Come on out. Let's dance. Uh, come on. And eventually they convince him. They drag him out onto the dance floor and he, and he begins to dance. And he dances away at the reception. And everybody thinks it's a wonderful time. It's a great party. And then the wedding's over. Everybody goes home. And he goes home that night. And there in the privacy of his room, his conscience smites him. And he is absolutely undone. Because he has now participated in something that he knows is sin. In the depth of his soul the guilt begins to wash over him. And it brings about ruination of his spiritual walk. See, that's how the strong can destroy the weak. Or another way, same scenario, same, same wedding, same scenario, but, but this time they continue to try to persuade him, but he holds firm. This time he doesn't give in. But as he continues to see them laughing it up and yucking it up with him, and, and he doesn't give in. He begins to be smitten in his conscience about the lovelessness of the people of this church. How can they be so callous to something that is obviously sin? How can it be that they care so little for me that in front of me they'll do these things and tear me apart? How can that be? And he's undone. Scandalon. He's been tripped up. He's been ruined by the exercise of the freedom of those who are stronger in Christ. Beloved, that's how it happens. That's exactly how it happens. Now, I need to say something here. I want you to catch this and grab a hold of it. There is a very big difference, according to the Apostle Paul, between giving offense, making offense in a modern sense of the word and what Paul's talking about here. Normally, when we say we offended somebody or somebody offended us, what we mean by that is they've annoyed us. Okay, in fact, Webster's dictionary definition of giving offense, this is the 1913 Webster's dictionary, it's causing displeasure or resentment or annoyance. Okay, this is more than annoying somebody that we're talking about here. This is actually undoing somebody spiritually. This is ruining somebody. So this is a very, very serious matter. Very serious. Look back at the text, verse 14. Paul interrupts his, his teaching here, really. It's kind of a parenthetical, verse 14. And he, he introduces the reason why it's necessary for the strong to accommodate the weak. Verse 14, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But, look at it, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. It is unclean. What Paul is saying is that to partake of certain non-kosher foods is absolutely fine. But if you think it is wrong, you think it is sin, then to you it is sin. 
And so at the same time, in the same circumstances, the same activity to two different people is sin and not sin simultaneously. We're dealing with the issues of sin here as it affects a person's conscience. As it affects their conscience. I mean, Christ himself taught, right? That sin doesn't come from the outside, it comes from where? It's from the inside. A man is not defiled by what he eats, but what proceeds out of his heart. It's, a, it's all over the New Testament. Therefore, what we eat, what we don't eat, has no bearing on our spiritual standing before Jesus Christ. But Paul wants us strong to understand that, that not everybody has internalized that truth yet. Not everybody has achieved the same level of spiritual maturity yet. That it is by our grace union with Jesus Christ we stand. Amen? And that doing something or not doing something doesn't improve it and it doesn't diminish it. We stand by the power of Christ alone. And it's a good thing, by the way, for if we stood at any, at any level based on our own, we would fall. So it's only Christ in whom we stand. But not everybody has fully internalized the implications of that powerful doctrine. The weak will intellectually agree with it. They'll say, of course, I'm saved by grace through faith alone. They'll recognize that reality. The problem is that they haven't really internalized it all the way down. They're inconsistent in their theology and practice. Now, that shouldn't be too hard to understand because I'm inconsistent and what I believe, and what I do, and so are you. None of us is perfectly consistent in terms of our theology and our practice. Isn't that true? We're all working it out along the way. So it shouldn't be hard to understand when somebody is inconsistent, that is, it a, a truth they believe they have not yet internalized and acted upon. Paul goes on here, verse 15. And he says to the strong, listen, you're tearing up your brothers. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. These are strong words. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. When the weak exercise their freedom in an unrestrained fashion, they violate one of the foundational commitments and commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you that you what? Love one another, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That was given right on the night in which he washed their feet. He served them. By this all men will know that you are disciples, my disciples, if you have love for one another. So do not destroy, verse 15, do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. When we entice someone to act contrary to their convictions, even though convictions that are wrongly formed, they will find themselves spiritually ruined. Spiritually ruined, destroyed. They will be guilty. They will be joyless. There will be spiritual lethargy. They will find themselves out of fellowship with God, and it's possible they will even leave the church and abandon the things of God. It is serious stuff. 
Notice how Paul says it here. Him for whom Christ died. Do you see that? Him for whom Christ died. That's, that's a measure of someone's worth. If Jesus will die to redeem someone, will we not restrain our own freedom in order to encourage that person's spiritual growth? That's the idea. We argue from the greater to the lesser. If Christ will do this great thing, can we not do this small thing? What kind of love do we really have? It is love that limits our freedom. Don't destroy your brother. Secondly, verses 16 to 18. Do not discredit the gospel. Do not destroy your brother. Do not discredit the gospel. Verse 16, therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. Now, there's some difference of opinion on what the good thing Paul's referring to here is. Some think it's the freedom that the strong, are, uh, that the strong enjoy. Don't let your freedom be spoken evil of. That's possible. But I, but I don't think it's big enough. I don't think, it, I don't think that encompasses really what's, in, what's at risk here. And so, not out on a limb all by myself. I have a few commentators that will crawl out with me. I think what he's talking about here is not your freedom that is spoken of, the good thing. It is the gospel itself. Do not let the gospel be spoken evil of because of your exercise of freedom. When the strong selfishly insist upon exercising their own freedom without regard to its impact upon their weaker brother, they actually attack the gospel itself. It's an attack upon the gospel. And it causes people to speak poorly of it, evil of it. In particular, It incites the unbelieving world to speak evil of the gospel. What kind of gospel is this in which you who claim to be brothers and sisters in Christ and love one another will do these kind of things to each other? You wouldn't even do that to an unbeliever. You show hospitality to an unbeliever, but to your brother and sister, you treat them like dirt. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. Suppose you're having a conversation with your coworker, you're talking to them about the things of Christ, the gospel, and finally gets around to the point where you ask them, or they ask you rather, where do you go to church? Where do you go to church? And, and so you tell them, I go to such and such church. You say, have you ever heard of it? And they say, well, yeah, actually, I have heard of that church. See, I, I have a neighbor and, and her son, they used to go to that church. And, and while they were going to that church, uh, some of the young men in the church, they, they invited her son to go out and have a beer with him. They didn't realize, I guess, that, that his father died as an alcoholic. They just thought it'd be fun to go ask this young man to go out and have a beer. And so that's what they did. And it, it so hurt him and his mother that they don't, they don't go to that church anymore. And you say, wow, wow. Oh, what church do they go to now? And your co-worker says, they don't go to church anymore. They don't go anymore. Because not even the world treats you like that. Not even the world will treat you like that. The gospel becomes discredited in the eyes of the unbelieving world 
because a few young men want to exercise their freedom in Jesus Christ to go have a beer. Are they free? Yes. Should there be some restraints on that freedom? Yes. The restraint of love. Listen, we're not to allow our freedom to become an occasion for those outside the church to slander the gospel. Shouldn't be their observation that the gospel of Jesus Christ divides people. It should be their observation that it does what? It brings people together. It brings them together. Paul goes on here. The reason, verse 17, the reason the strong are not to to destroy their brother, the reason they're not to to bring an evil report from the unbelieving world is because the, the kingdom of God is antithetical to trivial things like food and drink. For the kingdom of God, he says, verse 17, is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's the most basic issues of life. He says it's not about that. The kingdom of God is not about these things, these freedoms. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We're neither the worse if we eat or the better if we don't eat. It's not about that. Alva J. McLean, who's book, The Greatness of the Kingdom of God, remains, I believe, one of the greatest masterpieces of theology in the 20th century. How's that? You haven't read it, get it, read it. But in his commentary on Romans, he says the following, and I quote, the kingdom of God is not founded upon the distinctions between what you eat and what you do not eat. The kingdom of God is not a set of legalistic ceremonies. That's Paul's argument here. And we know this is intuitively true. I mean, if you're called upon to teach a lesson on the kingdom of God, you don't prepare by getting out a list of things that you can eat and can't eat. Isn't that right? That's not how you bring a lesson on the kingdom of God. What do you focus on when you teach on the kingdom of God? Well, Paul says you focus on righteousness, peace, and joy. That is upright living, tranquility among the brothers, and the joy of the Spirit of God. These are the things that make up the kingdom of God. Not what you eat, not what you don't eat, not your freedom whether you use it or don't use it. For he who in this way, verse 18, serves Christ as acceptable to God and approved by men. When we we focus on the right things, we're pleasing to our brothers and sisters in Christ and we're pleasing to God. Don't discredit the gospel. Do not discredit the gospel by the exercise of your freedom. Third, Do not disrupt the unity. Verses 19 to 21. Do not disrupt the unity, and if I can say this, of the church. Do not disrupt the unity of the church. Verse 19. So then, let us pursue the things which make for peace in the building up of one another. Mutual edification. One another. Interesting here, by the way. It implies that the strong also have something they can learn from the weak. Usually we think it's the weak that need to do all the changing, right? They're the ones whose conscience is too tightly formed. They're the ones who haven't understood fully the implications of their, of their spiritual union with Jesus Christ, their freedom. They're the ones that have to change. The strong, we've arrived, we don't have to change anything. But actually, Paul is saying here, there's something we can learn from one another. There's something we can learn from one another. We can build up each other. That is, the strong can learn that the exercise of their freedom alone is not the only issue. That concern for someone else 
is an important spiritual development for them if they're to be truly strong. That they, they need to examine their own hearts. What are my motives? Why do I do what I do? Why is it so important to me to, to utilize this freedom? Why am I so willing to stand so firmly upon this freedom that I'm unwilling to give it up? Maybe it's because there's not much love in my heart. Maybe it's because I, I approach a Christian life about all about me and not about you. My own position in Christ, that's more important to me than you. And he's saying, listen, verse 19, build up one another. Pursue the things that lead for peace and build up one another. Don't tear down, verse 20, the work of God for the sake of food. Don't tear down the work of God. Build it up. Don't tear it down. I think in context here, the, the work of God is, is not just the individual believer, but it's the community of believers he's talking about. This is the work of God. It is not that just he saves people individually. He saves people and then places them together in community. So don't tear that down. You know, a church that is, that is embroiled in disputes where you've got the strong and the weak, and they're going back and forth at each other, right? The, the strong, they're looking contemptuously on the weak. The weak, they're, they're judging the strong. People are exercising their freedom without regard for the, what it does to anybody else. Weak people being destroyed off in the corner and then slowly melting away into the back of the church and eventually out the door. That kind of stuff going on, it, it saps the strength of the church. It ruins the gospel witness. It, it diminishes the unity of the body, and it and it makes the church ripe for division. And so Paul is saying here, don't do that, verse 20. Don't, don't tear down the work of God just for the sake of food, just for your own freedom. I mean, to insist on my own freedom without regard to anyone else, it shows not, the, not just a hardness of heart. Look at the end of verse 20. It shows it that you're evil. For they're evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It's not just, you know, I, I need to grow a little bit in love, but I got all this freedom and I'm enjoying it. What Paul says is if, if you're enjoying that freedom and you're hurting people by it, you're not just lacking love a little bit. You've moved all the way over into evil. You're actually attacking and destroying the work of Christ. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine at all or do anything. You see in verse 21, by which your brother stumbles. It's better to constrain your liberty. It's better to say no to things than to run the risk of causing your brother to be destroyed spiritually. Why do, the weak, why do the strong have to make all the accommodations? You ever think about that? I mean, maybe you're, maybe you're sitting here thinking about that. At least I did when I was preparing this. I thought, well, gee, that doesn't sound fair. Why, why doesn't the weak have to make some accommodation for the strong? Do you notice that? It's the strong that have to make all the accommodations. Well, here's the answer, I think. It's because the strong have more latitude. They, they, they already can make accommodations. The, the weak, they're boxed into a corner. There's really nothing they can do. So you who are strong, praise the Lord. That you understand 
the freedom you have in Jesus Christ. But understand this, as you exercise that freedom in love, you're going to have to curtail it. But if you're really strong in Christ, you're really mature in your faith, you won't have any problems with that. But if curtailing your freedom starts to chafe a little burr under your saddle, you don't feel like, I don't want to do that. Then maybe you're really not as strong as you think you are. Maybe you're not as mature as you think you are. Maybe the freedom that you're insisting on is, is really not an expression of gratitude to God for the grace of God in your life as much as it's an opportunity for the flesh to do what it wants and claim spiritual cover. I mean, these things begin to dig deep down, rip open the heart, reveal the motives that are hidden there. Where's the power come to do all this? I mean, honestly, where does it come from? Where do, where do I get the strength to curtail my own freedom for the sake of somebody else? I'm glad you asked that question because I want to answer it for you. It comes back in chapter 12, so turn back there. All the way back to the beginning of chapter 12, the first two verses... I told you when we preached these verses a long time ago that this was the doorway into the Christian life. And I told you there were four keys to unlock the door of the Christian life. And they're right here in these first two verses. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What is the will of God? The will of God is that you voluntarily restrain your freedom out of love for your brother or sister in Christ. That is the will of God for you. And the power to fulfill that will of God comes here in the first verse by remembering the mercies of God, that is the gospel by preaching the gospel to yourself, by reflecting upon all of the theology of chapters 1 through 11, my wretched condition in, in sin, the deliverance that Jesus Christ has purchased for me, the reality that I have been set free from sin, Romans 6, 7, and 8, that I'm now walking by the Spirit, that God is faithful to His promises because He will not let His ancient people go, but He will recover them. And if He recovers them, then I know that I too can stand firmly on this foundation. Therefore, in light of that reality, start living differently. Start living differently. Relinquish yourself to God, verse 1. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Resist the world's corruption, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That is, renew your mind through the Word of God. And when you do these things, in the power of the Spirit of God, you will begin to fulfill the will of God, which all the way over here to chapter 14 is live in community with each other, love one another, stop judging each other. Those who are mature in Christ, restrict your freedom for the benefit of your weaker brother and display to the world that you are a new people in Jesus Christ. My friends, this is the gospel and this is its outworking. And none of this can be done. None of this can be done unless we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and by faith cling hold of Him 
that His Spirit might fill us and empower us to live the life of God. If you have not yet received the Lord Jesus Christ, if you, like so many, see Christianity as a set of do's and don'ts, things that I do and I don't do, if you have failed to understand that there's nothing you can do that puts God in your debt, there's nothing that you can do to make yourself acceptable before your Maker. But God is the one who has already done something. And that is He has sent His own Son to die as a propitiation for your sin. That there on that cross, God the Father poured out on His own Son the wrath that is rightfully due yours. And if by faith you will embrace that truth, you will be saved. And that salvation will eventuate into a life pleasing to God. This is the gospel. I urge you to embrace this truth. As we close our time here together, let me pray that you think on these things. If something you've heard this morning strikes your heart, you, you want to talk more on these things, you, you want to know how you can come to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then you come down and you see me at the end of the service. Let's pray. Oh God, We just want to begin by confessing, our Father, that there is no good thing in us. O Lord, that we are sinners saved by grace. And whether that salvation took place 50 years ago or five minutes ago, our Father, we remain sinners saved by grace. Indeed, for all of eternity, we will never be anything more. We are dependent upon your grace manifested through the Lord Jesus Christ. That it is his death, burial, and resurrection by which he took upon himself the guilt of our sin and and by which his perfect righteousness has been credited to our account. That we are able to stand now and in eternity. Oh Lord, I pray that you would work among us as a body, as a as a group of believers here, that you would open wide our hearts to, to see, to disclose the secret motives therein. In particular, our Father, those of us who, who would consider ourselves strong in faith, mature in Christ. Oh Lord, may this message this morning be your searchlight by which your Holy Spirit would reveal the deep corners of our own hearts that you would show us, our Father, those places where we are not enjoying freedom for the glory of God, but we are using our freedom as a cover for sin. O Lord, bring conviction and bring release. Let us put it all on Jesus Christ, walking by faith. We pray in his name.